You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's begin by reviewing the overall message and structure of 1 Timothy at this point. We've said that the overall theme of this book is putting God's house in order, and we've rooted that theme in 1 Timothy 3.15. I write these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy, who's ministering in the city of Ephesus. He, uh, he opens the letter with this presenting issue of false teachers in the church, and he exhorts Timothy to address this problem for the sake of love, love proceeding from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and sincere faith. And then as he speaks to certain aspects of the false teaching, he then recounts his conversion. He celebrates the gospel of the happy God that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul was the worst. And then Paul brought his discussion, uh, uh, begins his discussion of the church. He, He first relates the church to this wider society, and he urges prayers for those in authority, and he encourages Christians uh, to live peaceable and quiet lives as they seek the good of society and the salvation of all people. And then he, he turns to consider the internal ordering of the church, especially as it gathers for worship. So Pastor David last week carefully walked us through Paul's exhortation to men and women. Let the men pray. Let the women do good. Let the women learn and let the elders teach. And now over the next two weeks, we're going to consider the two formal offices of the church, the overseers or pastors and deacons. And so the rest of this sermon is structured around a simple word in chapter 3, verse 2. It's the word therefore. Okay? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be, and off we go. And that word, therefore, is important. Paul's flow of thought is, there's this noble task to be done. Uh, Therefore, it's necessary that the men who aspire to that task have certain qualifications, must be a certain kind of men. Because it's a noble task, the men must be like this. And so the outline is real simple and seeks to answer two questions. What is the noble task? And two, what kind of men must fulfill it? And so let's say a word first about the terminology. Last week, Pastor David said uh, that the terms overseer and elder and pastor uh, refer to the same office. And I just want to briefly make the connections between them. So uh, in First in Timothy, we're given two offices, overseer and deacon. Um, but later in the book, Paul refers to elders who manage or govern or lead well. They're worthy of double honor. And so overseers govern and lead, and elders govern and lead, and so we think those are the same thing. Um, Or try Acts 20-28. This one's really important. Paul gathers, it says, he gathers the elders together, the elders of the church at Ephesus together, and he tells them this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so you hear all three of those terms there. You hear elders being addressed, and they've been made overseers, and because they are overseers, they should shepherd or pastor or care for the flock. So shepherds are pastors, our overseers are elders. They're interchangeable 
terms. Or again, in 1 Peter 5, Peter says the same thing. He says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd or pastor the flock, exercising oversight. So I'm speaking to elders, you should uh, pastor the flock and you should exercise oversight. So we take these to be three different names for one single office. And that's the noble task Paul has in view in chapter 3. So what is the noble task? Well, let's begin with that term overseer. Paul, um, Paul says that these are overseers. So pastors oversee a people. They watch over a people. They supervise a people. They watch out for a people. Or again, consider the task of elder later in chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule or govern or lead well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Pastor David said this last week, um, governing and teaching are these two fundamental activities. And they're mentioned in chapter 2, verse 12. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Govern. First Thessalonians 5.12 says the same. Respect those who labor among you in teaching and preaching and are over you, who rule, who govern you in the Lord. And so there are at least two aspects to this noble task of pastoring. On the one hand, there's teaching and instruction, and on the other, there's governing, leading, ruling. And these are related, but they're, they're also distinct. Like one of the ways that we lead is by teaching, but that's not the only way that we lead. Pastors don't just show up on Sunday and preach and do stuff here. We also meet regularly. Every, every other Thursday night, we meet for a couple of hours and we make decisions and we discuss things and we talk and we organize and we manage the household of God. We pray about what God wants us to do, how he wants us to order this church, not just in general, but specifically, where are we and what must we do as a church? And so we're overseeing, we're watching for the needs and threats and challenges and issues, and we're doing what we can to meet those needs, and then we're teaching. We're teaching so that with God's help, uh, we can equip the saints for the work of ministry. So pastors teach, and pastors govern. Pastors feed the flock, Pastors lead the flock. I want to fill out the task a little bit more uh, by going to the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, to kind of give us a biblical imagination and vision for what's behind the, this task of pastoring and oversight. Okay, Because often when we hear the word shepherd or pastor, you have certain connotations that you have in view. Certain things come to your mind, and I want to, we want to make sure that those are biblical ones and that we're not leaving any out. So let's start with two uh, biblical themes. One is shepherds, and one is priests. Shepherds and priests. So what do shepherds do? Well, most obviously they care for sheep, right? When you think of a shepherd in the Bible, you might first of all think of uh, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Right? The shepherd, he's, he's attentive. He's caring for the sheep. He sees, hey, there's one missing. I need to go get them. I need to care for my flock. Shepherds care for sheep. That's actually what 1 Timothy 3 says. If a man does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for? How will he care for the flock, for the sheep, for the church? And that word care for actually only shows up in the New Testament one other place. And it's in the parable of the Good Samaritan. That man sees the Good Samaritan lying on the side of the road, and he cares for him. He cares for him. He leans in. He sees needs, and he cares for that man. That's what shepherds do for sheep. Um, but shepherds do more than just care for sheep. 
Shepherds are also ready to fight wolves. And so David is the model shepherd of the Old Testament, and what made him a good shepherd is that he killed lions and bears when they threatened his flock. He carried a sling and stones, he had a rod and a staff, and he would use them to drive away wild animals that would devour his sheep, or thieves who would try to take the flock. Good shepherds are ready to fight, to identify threats to the flock and take action to defend them, even at great cost to themselves, right? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He gets in between the sheep and the wolves, the sheep and the thieves, and he puts himself on the line. That's what shepherds do. So shepherds care for and shepherds guard and protect. That's in the background of what pastors do. Now the second term is priest. Now pastors aren't exactly the same as priests in the Old Testament. Like we don't, we don't sacrifice animals up here, okay? Which was a major thing that priests did in the Old Testament. That's over, that's done, that's Jesus. But the pastoral task is a priest-like task, and it's worth thinking about what priests did. And this is especially important because there's a lot of confusion today about what a priestliness is. So there's this, um, for the last number of years, there's, been, there's a real popular um, uh, paradigm for church leadership that distinguishes between prophetic leaders and priestly leaders and kingly leaders. And it's kind of like, which one are you? Are you more of a prophetic leader? Are you more of a kingly leader? Are you a priestly leader? Okay, and it tries to identify certain qualities that kind of go with each of those. Um, and here's what the that paradigm says about priestly leadership. A priestly leader loves on people. He sees needs and he meets them. He focuses on feelings and emotions of people first. He makes people feel loved and cared for. He considers people's feelings when he chooses his communication methods. In fact, if there's a danger for a priestly type of leader, it's that he can elevate the feelings and needs of people above God's truth. That's the paradigm of priestly leadership that this um, group was offering. Now, there's truth in that, right? And you can hear the similarities to shepherding, like caring for the needs of people, leaning in to the needs of people. And why do they think that priests did this? Well, because priests brought the sins of the people to God in order that they could be forgiven. And they brought comfort from God to the people to say, God's forgiven your sins. He's forgiven you. You're right with him. And so priests were attentive to needs of people. That's true. However, I want you to think with me for a moment about two stories from your Old Testament about priests, okay? Do you remember how the Levites got their call to ministry? The Levites is the priestly tribe, and God called them to ministry. So here's the situation. Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, meeting with God. Aaron is down below the mountain, and he's leading the people in idolatrous worship. They make the golden calf, they bow down, they dance around it, and they worship false gods. Moses returns, he confronts the people for their wickedness, and he stands before them, and he cries out, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the Levites come running. And then Moses says to them, put on your sword. Go to and fro in the camp and kill your brothers and your neighbors. And they do it. And they kill 3,000 of their brethren that day. And here's what God says. Today, you have been ordained to the service of the Lord. Okay? Like there's a connection that God wants to make between their willingness to cut off their idolatrous brethren 
and their fittedness for priestly ministry. God says those go together. Here's a second story. It's not isolated, that paradigm. Numbers 25. This is a a lesser-known story. We're introduced to a man named Phinehas. He's the grandson of Aaron the priest. The Israelites, again, are committing idolatry. They're offering sacrifices to the Baals. Um, God has sent a plague upon them, and like 24,000 people have died for their idolatry. One Israelite actually goes so far as to take an idolatrous wife, a Midianite woman who worshipped false gods and was leading them astray, and he parades her, he brings her and flaunts her flagrantly in front of the entire congregation. Okay, It's like it'd be the equivalent of a pride parade in church. He's like, I know that I am sinning with a high hand, and I don't care. Watch me. And he comes marching down the, the main street of the Israelite camp. And Moses and the elders and the people are standing in front of the temple of meeting. And they are weeping at this great evil that this man is flaunting. But Phineas, Phineas stands up. He grabs a spear. He runs to that man's tent, throws open the tent, walks in, and pins that man and that woman to the ground and kills them. And God stops the plague. Here's what God says. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I have given him a covenant of peace, a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people. And so again... There's this zeal for the Lord that leads him to take decisive and violent action to preserve God's holiness. Now, what what do these stories teach us? They teach us that priests were the sort of men who were so zealous for God and his holiness, they were willing to kill their brethren brethren when they committed high-handed sin. The Levites in the Old Testament, they carried swords. That was a part of the priestly attire because there were different gradations of sacred space. You had the Holy of Holies, then you had the Holy Place, then you had the Temple Complex, then you had the Holy City, and there were different layers, and only certain people could come in. And the Levites, it was their job. They, when uh, uh, Mike just prayed, the doorkeeper in the house of God. You know what that is, the doorkeeper in the house of God? It's not like, you know, a butler. Okay? Let me show you right this way. It's, he's standing, it's like the, it's the bouncer. Okay? He's standing there with a sword, and, if, and, and what... The Levitical books tell us is if somebody is not authorized to be in there and they try to come in there, you pull out the sword and you kill them. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. Now, there are serious differences between the Old and New Testaments. Like, okay, like, you guys, you guys don't need to be walking around like, is Pastor David Eastwood packing today? Because I don't want to... I don't want to make a mistake. And it's like, well, yeah, but you have to think. It's, it's major things. Like you start bowing down to a statue, maybe you've got to watch out. But, um, but that's, not, that's, not how, that's not how it works. That's not the equivalent. We don't do that kind of discipline in the new covenant. But it does mean, it does mean that uh, pastors today, there's a deep similarity because we are supposed to rule and govern and lead the church, Paul says in Romans 12, with zeal, with the kind of zeal of Phineas and the Levites. We don't pick up physical weapons, but pastors must be willing to cut off false teachers like Hymenaeus and Alexander, to hand them over to Satan if they teach a different doctrine. And we must do so even if they are our friends. 
Like, I hope you feel the weightiness of that pastoral task. Okay? Your, your pastors feel that. Like, we know that what God has charged us to do is to teach and care for the flock and to protect it from error, which means if someone goes off the rails and is, is unwilling to repent and unwilling to teach proper doctrine and is trying to disrupt the church, we know what we have to do, what we have to lead this congregation to do, and it's like what the Levites did. This time without swords. So, um, maybe one other note on this. Um, this connects to what David, Pastor David said last week about the garden. Adam was called to work and guard the garden. Okay, And those two words, work and guard, only show up in the Old Testament together a few times. In Genesis 2, what Adam's supposed to do. And they also, it also shows up in the book of Numbers, and it describes what the Levites do. They're to work and guard the tabernacle. That's why they have the swords. They're to protect the sacred space. Like Adam was supposed to escort the, the serpent off the premises, just like the Levites are supposed to guard and protect sacred space. So here's the noble task. Here's my summary of the noble task in my own words. Okay? Pastors are called to oversee and care for God's flock by, number one, teaching his word with authority. Number two, zealously guarding the doctrine and worship of the church. And number three, organizing and mobilizing the church for mission. And I didn't focus as much on that one, but it's what Paul says, pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the noble task. That's what pastors do. Now, here's the question. In light of that task, what kind of men must you find to do it? That's the rest of the passage. And Paul gives us a number of things. He gives us seven positive terms, then he gives us four negative terms, and then he gives us three qualifications with reasons. Seven, four, three with reasons. That's the, the passage. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through these. And, and let me preface it by saying this. Um, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that these qualifications are like personality traits. Okay? Like you have to have a certain personality to be a pastor. And that's not true. These, none of these, actually, they don't have to do with skills. There's only one of them that has to do with having a skill, able to teach. Everything else is about character and maturity. And it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. It doesn't matter if you're outgoing and boisterous or if you're more quiet and shy. That's not the qualification. The qualification is character, maturity, and a certain skill in teaching. So let's walk through these seven. Let's start with the positives. Number one, pastors must be above reproach. Here's what that means. This is kind of a catch-all overarching term. It means that pastors are exemplary Christians. They're models of maturity. They're the sort of man that you ought to look at and say, I want to be like that. I want to imitate him as he imitates Christ. That's, they, they, they can't be great scandal in their lives, grave defects in their character. They're above reproach. If someone were to try to make an accusation against them, it would be foolish unless, of course, they had multiple witnesses because this guy was actually a snake. But in general, they're the kind of man whose character is unimpeachable. There's no way. He's above reproach. That's the kind of man you want for a pastor. Number two. Husband of one wife. Pastor must be a one-woman man. He must be faithful emotionally, physically, romantically to his wife. Now, that doesn't mean that single men, unmarried men, can't be pastors. right? Or, or that uh, a widower couldn't be a pastor. Because they can be on the trajectory of fidelity in their conduct, um, even in the absence of a particular wife. Nor does this mean, as some take it to mean, 
We don't believe that um, those who have been divorced are necessarily disqualified from pastoral office. In other words, there are circumstances in which, say, a wife has left her husband, has abandoned him, has been unfaithful to him and left him. But he was faithful. He was a one-woman man. And the fact that she has divorced him and left him doesn't disqualify him from holding office in the church. He can still be faithful because it's about character in his life. At the same time, this is important. I want you guys to know this on behalf of your pastors. It is a great tragedy and affront to God in our day when pastors who have been unfaithful to their wives seek to return to ministry after like 18 months. Like There may be a category for after long-term fidelity, after a failure of being able to be brought back in in some fashion into ministry, but we're talking like decades, not a year and a half. And the frequency with which pastors fall and then seek to get some, I'm going to get some counseling for a bit. And I'm better now, so now I can be it, right? No. It's in the qualifications for a reason. There needs to be a demonstrated fidelity to his wife because otherwise he won't be faithful to the church. He can't be a Phineas if he's the guy who's marching down the street with the pagan bride. Number three and four, I'm going to link together. Sober-minded and self-controlled. These are linked elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, Kyle McIver's devotional last week was, or uh, exhortation last week was so helpful. I'm actually going to use his definition of sober-mindedness because it was spot on. To be sober-minded is to have a refreshing clarity about life and reality. Like there's a a clarity of mind, a clear-headedness. Pastors must be level-headed, reasonable, under control. Steady, not hot-headed, not reactive or reactionary, not enslaved to passions and their appetites. Like they need to be prudent, thoughtful, wise, men of good judgment, the kind of men that you want to seek out for their advice. That's the kind of man you want to, t- to do the noble task. And, and they, they be, need to be models of self-restraint and self-mastery because they see clearly their heavenly hope and they see clearly the threats to their faith And so they seek to be sober-minded. And you can see why that's important given the task, right? Like a pastor's an overseer. So he has to be able to see clearly. You can't oversee if you can't see. And what do you need to see? Well, remember that pastors have to feed sheep and they have to fight wolves. And you need to be able to tell the difference. Because it's a great tragedy when pastors feed the wolves and fight the sheep. Or just fight everybody. Or just feed everybody. Like, there's distinctions that have to be made, which means you need to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Like, um, like here's, this is the pastor's tool, right? The Bible. This is our tool. But this, this tool can be used for different things. Like, this is the pure milk of the Word that we can use to feed you. Or it's a sword that we can use to cut you. And we need to know when it's time for milk and when it's time for swords. You need to be sober-minded. Number five, respectable. This is, again, as Pastor David unpacked very helpfully last week about women's apparel, it's about making it easier for people to respect you. Uh, Some people are simply disrespectful. It doesn't matter how respectable you are. They're still going to disrespect you, so you need to distinguish between being respectable and actually being respected. Paul wasn't respected all the time. 
but he was respectable. He didn't put unnecessary barriers in people's way. He was the sort of man who engendered trust in others. So is this guy trustworthy? Do you respect him? Does he communicate by the way he carries himself, by the way that he dresses, that here is a man who is worthy of honor and respect? That's what a pastor must be. Number six, hospitable. He needs to love outsiders. Pastors are models for mission. And so if we're going to organize and, and mobilize the church for mission, we ourselves have to be open and welcoming to outsiders. That's the mission field. Pastors who, men who don't love lost people shouldn't be pastors. Number seven, able to teach. This is probably better understood as skillful to teach. That'd be a better translation. In other words, it, um, because sometimes there can be this mentality of um, he's able to teach if you put a gun to his head. Right? And that's not what we're after. We want a certain kind of skill because this is our tool. And so what does skillful to teach mean? It means when they open it up and when they try to explain what's in it, do people get help or do they get confused? Can you see what they say in the book? Or is he making it up out of his own head? Is it there? Can he point you to it and you go, I see it, and he explains it in a way that helps me? Now, that doesn't mean that it's all the same. Like, your pastors do not teach the same. Our styles are very different. That's part of why we love team leadership and team preaching, is so that we don't begin to confuse one type of personality or preaching style with able to teach and skillful to teach. I teach the way that I teach because I'm me. Kevin teaches the way he teaches. David and Michael and Jonathan and David and Josh and Nick, we all teach differently. Did I get everybody? Because I was doing really fast and I didn't plan that. I got them all, right? Okay, good. It's dangerous when you start making a list on the fly. All right, negative traits. Let's turn there. Four negative traits, and these are basically the opposite of self-controlled and sober-minded. All of them just are different ways that you cannot be sober-minded and not self-controlled. So not a drunkard. Pastor cannot be, uh, have a, he, he cannot have his judgment undermined by the influence of too much alcohol. Now, alcohol is a good gift. It's a good gift. God gave it to gladden the hearts of men, but it's a dangerous gift, and a pastor must be sober-minded, like literally, not prone to drunkenness. Not violent or quarrelsome. Link those together. Um, violence has to do with being out of control. Losing one's temper. Being governed by anger. That's violence. The opposite of violent is gentle. And gentleness is related to self-control. Because pastors should be strong. They should be men of strength and character. But it's a strength that's under control. Okay? They, they know how to control their strength. Control uh, their impulses and their passions. Their their strength under control. They don't break bruised reeds. They don't quench quivering wicks. There's an old saying about a gentleman. A gentleman is someone who never insults you unintentionally. Okay? That's a gentleman. Okay? There's an element of that for pastors. Like if he, when he's going to try to sting, he means it. He's not just flying off the handle. Similarly, quarrelsome has to do with love of controversy and fighting. Now, I want you to think about this. Okay? Paul says... Not violent or quarrelsome, but gentle. But I said earlier that there's a violence zeal a part of the task. How does that fit? Well, it fits perfectly if you think about it. Shepherds must fight wolves. Priests must zealously guard sacred things. Pastors are going to be called upon to fight, and therefore they must be men who don't love to fight. 
You see that? Like, they're going to have to fight. So you don't want men who are always itching for a fight. Because men who itch for a fight, who are quarrelsome, cause problems. They fight sheep, not just wolves. And so Paul says, here's this noble task that includes a sword of the Spirit and a willingness to, to zealously guard the flock. And you need to be the kind of man who's not prone to controversy and quarreling and fighting and violence. You need to be under control. Number four, finally, the pastor must not be in the ministry for money. Like alcohol, money is a good gift, but it's dangerous, and so pastors must be models of generosity and wisdom in the stewardship of their own resources because they're going to steward the resources of the church. And so you can't want a guy who's trying to skim some off the top, trying to po pocket some away, who's like Judas, right, who loves to keep the money bag because he likes to take his own cut. That's a terrible uh, pastor. Finally, come to the last three qualifications. We've got these seven positives, four negatives, now three. And he gives reasons for each. He must be a good leader in his home. He must not be a new convert. And he must have a good reputation with outsiders. So why these? Well, managing one's household well means that uh, the husband or the father is the chief ordering agent in his home. Because the pastors are the chief ordering agents in the church. And so it's like a, a he who is faithful in little, I will put you over much. Can you be faithful in the little household and then God will allow you to be over the big household? Now what does faithfulness in the little household mean? Well, it doesn't mean that his kids are sinless. It doesn't mean that they don't act out. It doesn't mean that they don't disobey. Kids are kids. They're immature and they're sinners. And that doesn't change simply because the guy is a pastor. What it does mean is that a pastor has learned the skill and ability to maturely and wisely rein his kids back in when they begin to go off. He keeps them, the, the passage says, in submission. They aren't living in regular defiance of their parents and of God. Because a man who tolerates defiance in his children will not be a Phineas. He will tolerate defiance in the church. He won't know how to handle it. Or similarly, flip, flip it around, a man who is domineering and crushes his family will bruise the sheep. He'll crush the sheep. And so see what kind of man he is in his home. Measure his faithfulness to, is he the sort of man who can lead well? What's his home look like? That's how you check. That's how you check. Now the last two qualifications. Both of them, they're similar because both of them mention falling, the word falling shows up, and both of them mention the devil, which tells you something about pastoral ministry. It's dangerous. Pastor David told me the other day, he's a good line, he said, the devil's always trying to take out the lieutenants. He can't touch the chief shepherd. Chief shepherd is far beyond, he had his shot, he took it, and he, Jesus crushed it, right? Death no longer has dominion over him. Satan cannot touch the chief shepherd. He can touch the lieutenants. He can touch the under-shepherds. And so pastoral ministry is dangerous. So what does, it, what does it mean? Well, don't make a new convert into a pastor. Give him time. Let him mature. Let him be tested and humbled. Because if you fast-track him into ministry, he's going to start kind of strutting. Look at me. Look at me. And in doing so, it says he falls into the condemnation or the judgment of the devil. He commits the same sin that the devil committed. 
He thinks more highly of himself than he ought. He seeks to exalt himself. And so you don't put a guy who's not been tested, who's not been humbled, who's not matured in the pulpit. That's a snare. It's a trap. It's a condemnation. Uh, Second, reputation with outsiders. The devil wants to undermine the church's mission. And a pastor with a bad reputation, if he's a crank, he's a hothead, he's a money grubber, Right, whatever it is, whatever the, that kind of stuff that people know, that guy is like that, does not represent the Savior well. And pastors must represent their Savior well. That doesn't mean that people will like, always like the pastor. But if they dislike a pastor, it needs to be for the same kind of reasons that they dislike Jesus. Right? If they hate him, if they hate the pastors, it's because they also hated Jesus, not because the pastor does things that are hateful. So this is how we view this task as pastors. And as we've, over the years, as we, uh, we were launched out from a church that assessed us and our fitness for ministry, this congregation assessed our founding four pastors for ministry. And then as we've added now four additional pastors over the last few years, these have been the questions that have been the, at the forefront of our mind. What kind of man are they? Because this is a noble task. It's a burden that we carry. You need to know it's a really happy one. Like we... The eight of us love pastoring this church. Like we, it's, a, it's an amazing thing when we sit around that table and we just talk about what a joy it is. For all of the challenges that we face, the nomadic building blowing up kind of stuff, to the pastoral challenges that we face and marriages that are hard and, and kids that are hard and all of that kind of stuff. As much as there's burdens and it's hard, we love it. We really, really, really love it because we love you. We love you. And one of the reasons that we love it is because we're following Jesus in it. So let's bring this to the table. I said that King David is the model shepherd, but he's not the chief shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. And so Pastor Kevin read this. This wasn't planned, but he read Psalm 23, and this is where we're going to land at the table. So think about, I want you to think about this passage in light of the pastoral task. Okay? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You hear it? He leads. He feeds. He cares. He sees needs. He meets them. But David goes on. Listen to this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Like, in other words, there are threats around. There's evil here. There are enemies, but we're not afraid. Why? Because the shepherd's packing. He's armed. Like, the the rod and the staff, why do they comfort? It's not because he hits the sheep with it. It's because if a wolf shows up, he's ready. He has a weapon to fight off the wolf. And therefore, I can lie down in those green pastures. I can rest beside still waters because he is watching out for me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Here we are, right? We're at a table, prepared in the presence. That's not y'all. I'm not mean y'all are the enemies. Okay? Like, the surrounding world may be an enemy, but the Lord has prepared a table for us. He has anointed us with oil. Our cup overflows, and goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. And we dwell in God's house forever. Let me pray. Father, we... It's good to reflect on pastoral ministry. For most in this room, it's not relevant for them personally. They're not necessarily called to this office. 
And that's fine. But they need to know. This church, we want this church to know what, what do pastors do? And what kind of men should we be looking for as we seek to um, add new pastors or plant new churches? And so, God, I pray that you would help us as pastors to lead and feed this church well, to guard this flock well, to organize and order this church for mission well. It is a noble task and a happy one. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastors always distribute the table. We want to literally feed you every week, literally feed you. And so um, as they come, uh, we uh, will distribute the bread first. You can hold it, and we'll eat it together in a moment. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.